Hello, everyone. I'm Angie Kalusek-Ebrahimi, Senior Director of Lifestyle Medicine at Blue Shield of California, and your host for this episode of Healthy Dose of Dialogue podcast. My guest today is Dr. Claire Purvis. Dr. Purvis is a clinical psychologist and Vice President of Clinical Product and Content at Headspace, a global leader in meditation and mindfulness with a mission to improve the health and happiness of the world. Many of you might be familiar with Headspace's mobile app, which gives you access to hundreds of meditations focused on everything from stress to sleep to managing change at work and home, as well as exercises to add mindfulness to your day. In this episode, we'll hear from Dr. Purvis about the science behind mindfulness meditation, her insights on digital health innovations, and how we can all take concrete steps to support our mental health and well-being. We've all spent the last year and a half dealing with the impacts of COVID, from sheltering in place to missing loved ones to concerns about being exposed to COVID. And because of that, we all have a lot of reason to pay attention to how we're doing mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. And for that reason, I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Purvis to this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Purvis. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's learn a little bit more about you. You're a clinical psychologist by training, and you've also done work in digital health. So what led you to Headspace? Yeah, so really throughout my my training and my career, I've been uh, operating at the intersection of, of mental health and technology, broadly stated. And one of the main reasons for that that drew me to working in technology both during my doctoral training and and then uh, in industry is really the potential for digital technologies like mobile apps um, to radically expand access to evidence-based mental health interventions, um, treatments, and and self-management tools. And so in coming to a company like Headspace, what was really exciting and appealing about it to me is that, you know, we'd been creating different types of of mental health tools and, and apps both in an academic setting and, and earlier in my career at an early stage startup. But Headspace really, I think, was unique in the sense that they had created such a strong consumer brand and such an enormous global reach by creating credible, uh, scientifically and authentically backed uh, mindfulness and meditation content, and then wanted to expand that offering you know, to cover off additional types of of mental well-being content and supports for folks. And that's the point at which I entered to really help bring behavioral science into their product development process um, and really infuse kind of scientific processes throughout um, the organization. So it was a really exciting time to join. And given my background, just an incredible opportunity to see a company really operate at global scale um, and with, um, with a really beloved consumer brand in a way that you know, our academic efforts and and other earlier stage companies just hadn't been able to do. Well, you're obviously an expert in the field, that's for sure. And uh, for all of our listeners out there, let's start with some of the the basics here. What are the benefits of meditation and mindfulness? And is there a difference between the two? Absolutely. So I'll start with the, the second half of the question. There is a difference between meditation and mindfulness. They're obviously really closely related, but you can think about mindfulness really as a quality of being or an ability to be present and undistracted 
with an open mind and a kind heart. That's one of the ways that, um, that Andy Puttycomb often defines mindfulness, which I found really helpful. So if mindfulness is kind of the way of, of being in the world or a quality that we bring to our experience, meditation is an exercise or a practice where we learn to be more mindful, but it's away from kind of the flow of our everyday life. It's a particular practice that we set aside time to go and do to really cultivate that quality of mindfulness. So a nice metaphor for that can be, you know, we may want to be able to show up in our daily life um, with fitness and mobility or, or being active in daily life. But a part of how we cultivate that might be going to the gym to do particular exercises, run on a treadmill, lift weights. And so they relate in the same way um, that there are different types of practices we can use to cultivate mindfulness. Meditation is one of the best known and, and most powerful practices we can, um, we can use to, to cultivate that mindful awareness. It's a great explanation. I think it's the first time it's been explained to me in that way. And I love the open mind and kind heart. Mm -hmm. Love that. Yeah. Wonderful. So how does having an open mind and a kind heart translate to better health outcomes in the long run? So there's so many um, different areas where mindfulness meditation has been shown to improve health outcomes. First, there's some really interesting neuroscience uh, behind mindfulness meditation that can start to help us understand, you know, how this works. And uh, while I'm not a neuroscientist, um, so, you know, I will speak a little more simply about this. There's an incredible amount of literature in this space. That's, that's just fascinating. Um, but at a high level, we see from, from meditators who have been practicing, you know, for an extended time, we see some specific functional and structural changes in the brain, specifically the amygdala or the area of the brain that's largely responsible for our fear response and kind of that emotional center of the brain that actually structurally shrinks after, um, after long time meditation practice and the prefrontal cortex, uh, grows or becomes more dense as a way to think of that. So really what we're doing, um, through mindfulness meditation is rewiring or repattering, um, the pathways in the brain that contribute to how we respond to stimuli that come up in our everyday lives. One way that I like to describe it is, you know, we're kind of building in more of a, a pause between that stimulus and a response and a space to be intentional about how we respond um, to what's happening in our daily lives. And so when, when we look at other health outcomes, if we think of, you know, that's Again, it's, it's a simplified description, but that's one of the main findings in the neuroscience about kind of what's happening in the brain over time as we practice meditation. And then it becomes a little easier to see how we see so many other psychosocial and emotional positive impacts of mindfulness meditation, particularly stress reduction. That's one of the most robust, most repeated findings in um, our headspace research specifically has shown that after a very short time, even 10 days of um, 10 minutes a day of meditation practice using headspace, we can see significant reduction in stress increases in happiness and positive affectivity. So then, you know, when we kind of thread that needle and think about how much more we're learning now about the, um, the relationship between chronic stress and physical health outcomes, chronic illnesses and mental health outcomes, it's really easy to see how a practice like mindfulness meditation really has strong evidence as a preventive self-care practice um, to improve our health in the long term. 
And that's some of the research, you know, as our research program at Headspace grows and becomes more mature, we're investing in really doing some of that larger scale, longer term research to, to really start to generate more evidence there and understand more about how this really ancient practice has uh, benefits in, in modern life. We all always hear that there's this mind-body connection and to really hear that there's science supporting that is um, incredibly exciting. So one of the things that I certainly think about when I'm trying to be present and mindful is put the technology away, right? But with Headspace, we're, we're talking about using technology to help us get centered and get focused. So is there any science behind that that supports the use of technology for mindfulness? Well, I think there's a couple ways to think about it. One, technology itself, um, you know, we, of course, we're hearing so much, you know, in the news right now about all these negative impacts of different types of, of technology use that's out there. Um, but when we think about what that's really about, it's how we're relating to those devices or to what what kind of content we're consuming via technology. So really a lot of these um, negative outcomes come down to, again, how we're responding to this, this device or this technology that we're using. So an app like Headspace, the phone is really a, a tool to help us gain access to um, meditation teaching and guidance and other wellness practices that we might not otherwise have. So I do think, I mean, it is something that we should all be aware of and, and try to bring as much intention as we can to how we use these tools that we have um, that have a lot of potential to offer us, but really when we, you know, they also have the potential to create distraction, um, particularly when we're relating to them and getting kind of caught up in that more uh, kind of reactive way. So while we don't have, there's not a specific study I can cite of, you know, here's what we know about how headspace changes the way you respond to digital notifications or your phone. What we do know is that across 30 of our trials, people have used headspace on their phones and really received significant benefit from that. So I think we want to try to hold both of these things as true, that our technology is a tool that we can use in, in ways that serve um, positive outcome. And then we also want to be intentional and aware that um, these devices can also introduce distraction or negative outcome. And the more that we can bring intention and, and try to, um, you know, mitigate that through how we set up our notifications. And I could talk for, forever about like all the strategies I do to try to minimize um, notifications and distractions and, you know, going down the rabbit hole of, of different uh, apps and things on my phone, but that requires some, some intention and, and really thinking about how do I want to use this device? How does this serve me best? And kind of some constant iterating there. I really like how you sort of set this up as just reframe the way that you think about technology, right? It's a tool that you can use. And if you're deliberate in how you use it, then uh, it can be for your benefit um, versus your detriment. And it's interesting because in the intro, I was saying how it's been really a struggle with COVID and people have been more stressed. And I think one of the reasons that people have been more stressed is that they are um, spending extended periods of time on technology because they're working from home. So they're on their computers, they're on Zoom all day. 
And so we're seeing now that employees are experiencing increased burnout. They they're, have higher levels of fatigue. Um, and I know that Headspace for Work published a report on 2021 mental health trends that showed that burnout is up about 10% in the U.S., 8% uh, globally from 2021 over 2020. So can you share some results of those findings and were you surprised by the findings? Yeah, so th this is a survey we did with a little over 5,000 uh, adults that were 18 to 64 working in, in different areas. We actually included a few additional countries this year. So we have Australia, France, and Germany um, in that survey as well, in addition to, to the U.S. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's it's hard to say, given what we've all sort of experienced, and I think kind of the in intuitive sense of what's going on, I don't know that I would necessarily say there were findings that particularly surprised me. There are some, I think, that stand out that say, okay, we need to really um, focus and be aware of, of what's going on and think about how we uh, support support people in this next, you know, the next year and the next several years as we kind of cope with some of the after effects of, um, of the pandemic and of what we've all been through. One thing that stood out to me is that this isn't necessarily a significant change from, from before, but we did see in the survey that women remain more stressed than men on average globally, which has been a relatively consistent finding. Um, but I think just coupled with, you know, what we're seeing around um, women exiting the workforce because of um, additional demands in terms of uh, well, there's there's many many reasons for that, but we know one is around really needing to manage childcare at home and burdens falling at you know more on women um, statistically speaking than than on men. I just think to me this is particularly as a woman who's working and doing experiencing this this virtual uh, work life. It just raised my my eyebrows a bit to say, okay, this is a consistent finding. It's not likely to change dramatically now that we're seeing these trends. And so what can we really do to think about providing personalized and responsive mental health support to not just women, but to people of, of many different groups who are experiencing these stressors in a unique way and, and bearing more of a burden of those stressors. The COVID-19 pandemic has in some ways um, just shown a light on trends that were already present and has now created additional urgency around us really thinking uh, creatively and, and more innovatively about how do we really provide support um, in a way that's personalized and resonant for um, the, the people in the groups that really need need that support now more than ever. I find that really interesting in that what you're saying is personalized support. And I'm curious if you have any ideas on how employers can do a better job of providing this. I know that, for example, Blue Shield of California has paused meetings before 9 a.m. or after 5 p.m. and to take a lunch hour. And I, I found that to be such a great support of work-life balance during the pandemic. But how, how could you get more personalized with, as an employer with some of the support? There's a couple ways that I would think about it. You know, one, certainly given my my perspective as someone at a at a digital mental health company, I think when we when employers are looking at the types of solutions that they want to provide to their to their employees, increasingly there are a lot of options on the market now that can um, 
that have thought about this in terms of designing their services or products uh, in ways that are um, either able to understand the the end user and, and really match them with a more personalized level of support, which can look a lot of different ways. But um, so I think really taking a look at, well, what types of you know services do we want to provide and do they have anything they can show us or any evidence they can provide around how they're responsive and personalized to individuals' needs. So in terms of putting together, you know, mental health support, I think there is a lot available, particularly in the digital space that is really forward-looking in this way. And internally within the organizations, I think something we've done at, at Headspace and that many organizations have done that, you know, we get a lot of positive feedback on is our employee resource groups and support that is, you know, really particularly oriented around employees' identities and experiences that are shared. And sometimes it's it's really just a venue or a formal area, a space where employees can get together themselves to provide that peer support and peer connection, um, you know, which, you know, steps like that, I think, can can go a long way um, in providing that support and, and really continuing to have, I think, dialogue uh, and curiosity and, and open-mindedness around how are our employees' needs shifting and evolving and changing? And how can we kind of continue to adapt the type of support that we provide uh, as we learn more about what people are going through, particularly in these last couple of years, but I think you know that, that will continue. I wanna take this to even another level and talk about mental health professionals uh, and what we're seeing in the US right now. And as you know, there's a, a national shortage of mental health professionals. So 37% of the US population, that's about 122 million Americans, are living in areas where there are shortages of mental health professionals. About two thirds of those are in rural areas. And right here in California, about 90% of California counties have a shortage in mental health professionals. And then even make it even more dramatic, um, we're not seeing that the the mental health professionals that are available actually match sort of the diversity um, of the the neighborhoods that they're serving. Um, almost ninety percent of mental health professionals are Caucasian. So um, I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think needs to be done in order to close the gap and scale access for mental health services? I wish that I had the the ultimate answer to that. That's um, that is truly, I think, the question for for our society and for for the world right now to think about is how do we close this gap and how do we really radically expand our ability to um, support people's mental health in ways that you know we've always struggled to do. Be- before COVID, this was um, already really being highlighted as um, an urgent issue in the delivery of mental health care um, in the U.S. and globally, but I think you know there are some there's some positive trends happening that I think are going to be a part of the solution. So to your point around, you know, we have we have kind of this dual problem um, in the mental health provider space, which is not only do we have um, kind of in absolute numbers not enough providers. Um, those providers that we do have are dense in some areas and then completely missing in other areas. So the distribution is really uneven of where providers are practicing and are available. And then of all those providers, that population does not mimic 
uh, the population of, of clients or consumers of mental health services, uh, which is which is a problem. So on, on the first couple of points, I think there are some really, um, there's some trends that are emerging in the kind of virtual care and digital mental health care space that are really helpful here. One, of course, you know, what, what I've spent a lot of my time in my career doing is thinking about how do we translate evidence-based mental health services and support into digital products um, that are either entirely delivered within an app or within software, or can be delivered with minimal uh, support or oversight from a human provider. And that kind of, um, you know, that's a digital therapeutics or digital health sort of um, uh, approach. And I think that's one piece of what a full ecosystem of mental health care looks like, which is to say, let's take these technologies that can be always on, that can scale without limit, and really think about how we design them in a way to deliver meaningful clinical benefit for a certain portion of the population who can safely and appropriately self-manage. Um, and so we're seeing, of course, we've been seeing proliferation in that space for a long time um, and will continue to. And I think we'll see you know, additional innovation and improvement there as we get better data capability and um, you know, as new technologies emerge as well. Um, there's also, I think, a really interesting potential for workforce evolution in mental health that we're seeing across a number of digital and virtual care providers. Um, it's mental health coaching, which has been provided, you know, by a number of um, a number of mental health companies. It's really gained traction, I think, for the same type of use case as digital therapeutics, which is a large portion of the population of folks who would benefit from mental health support who don't actually need the level of, um, of care and all of the skill set of a licensed mental health provider or a therapist or a psychiatrist who could be really well helped by um, a coach or, you know, this is sometimes called a, a paraprofessional uh, mental health support person personnel. And while we're very nascent in this space, I think there's incredible promise here. If, if as a field, we can come together and say, you know, create standards around quality and training and delivery to define what would this new member of the mental health workforce, how do we truly quantify and, um, and standardize that? It's faster and easier to train professionals um, at a, from a coaching perspective than it is to say, get a master's degree or a doctoral degree or a medical degree. So while we do need still some additional standardization and kind of an agreement around quality and metrics for coaching, we're already seeing a lot of success in the market with, um, you know, with folks that are offering mental health coaching. So I think there's a big potential there to reimagine who's in that mental health workforce um, and how we distribute care within a full behavioral health team to really allow us to take on a lot more volume. Um, and as we expand, you know, the training programs, and I think really um, try to be embedded within communities that need care, my hope is that what we'll see is greater access to mental health training for populations and communities that historically haven't been um, able to access, you know, that higher, higher degree training or potentially just haven't been, had a lot of exposure to the mental health field to even consider that as a career potential. So as we expand more opportunities for ways of working in the field, my hope is that we will also um, begin to find really sustainable ways to diversify that workforce and to really 
um, you know, bring more, more representation into the field. Uh, I think that's a, that should be an urgent mission for, for the mental health field, in my opinion. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that uh, a lot of people just need this sort of more generalized mental health and emotional health support, right? Especially in today's environment, having lived through um, the pandemic and, and, you know, social issues and political issues, people are uh, anxious and have sort of a general malaise that may not be a full-blown uh, mental health condition, but may require or benefit from some coaching. So I think that's a really interesting perspective. I'm going to ask you one more question about the environment today and sort of stigma around mental health, because I know that historically we've really seen a lot of people shy away from talking about mental health and mental health issues, but we're starting to see more athletes and celebrities and leaders come forward to talk about mental health. And I'm wondering if you think, are we turning a corner when it comes to stigma around mental health? I really hope so. I think there are some indicators that we are. There was some recent data that came out showing that among adults, I believe ages 18 to 26, they're about twice as likely to, um, to consider seeking mental health support as a sign of strength as compared to adults um, over age 35. So we're seeing a bit of a generational shift, I think, and I hope in the attitudes towards mental health um, and really seeing it as, you know, that's just such a hopeful sign to see seeking help and asking for mental health support and help as a sign of strength uh, rather than anything else, because it is a sign of, uh, of strength. I think the more we all see people share their stories, um, it's inspiring and it, it really humanizes and, and helps build, I think, understanding and awareness of how, how prevalent and just how, um, you know, how shared these experiences are. So I think the more that really respected and admired people come forward with those stories and, and share that, um, I just think it's, it's incredibly inspiring and, and a really, really positive movement that's happening. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of that as well. In fact, I have a teenage daughter, and uh, I know that she and her friends talk about these things sort of in the normal course of their day. And I, I have to say it's such a, as you said, it's inspiring and it's so positive. And, you know, we look to the younger generation to bring us into the future. Uh, okay, so I'm going to ask you a couple of sort of rapid fire questions. What is one thing that you do to stay healthy? I am a, a walker. I I actually am really lucky to live close to a, a large park. I like to get out there in the mornings and and go for a walk. It's one that you know I can I can always fit in. Um, I can't always make it to the gym or, or do other things that um, you know that are that are more complicated to take care of my health. But I can get out and do a daily walk, um, and I just enjoy it so much and and know that it's uh, it's beneficial. What are some ways that we all can cultivate mindfulness in our everyday lives? Yeah, I love this question. Um, you know, I think a meditation practice um, is not where we all have to start in cultivating mindfulness. I think for a lot of folks, the idea of um, sitting down for 
you know, even 10 minutes with their eyes closed, focusing on their breath, that just feels really inaccessible. Um, and I totally get that. So one way that we can cultivate mindfulness in our everyday lives is really any opportunity we have to bring our full attention and awareness to what we're doing in the moment. And I like to try this with very routine daily activities, things like washing the dishes, uh, a way that we can use that time to cultivate mindfulness is instead of, you know, kind of washing the dishes on autopilot and thinking about the million things that you have to do for the rest of the day or tomorrow, um, spend those couple of minutes bringing your attention to the feeling of the sudsy water on your hands, to the temperature, to the way the dishes feel in your hands, how your feet feel on the floor. The practice of doing that, of, of bringing your full awareness to those sense, those uh, physical sensations, um, that is cultivating mindfulness. And that's a way that, um, you know, we can kind of drop in for just a couple moments at a time and practice that throughout the day. Words of wisdom. <laughs> Dr. Purvis, thank you so, so much for talking with me today. It's been a great pleasure. And to our audience, thank you for taking the time to listen. I hope that you walked away with a better understanding of the benefits of meditation and mindfulness, as well as the role that technology plays in addressing our mental health access needs. Uh, to learn more about Headspace and to start your journey towards more joy, better sleep, less stress, visit headspace.com or download their app. And for now, I invite you to sit back and take a moment to unwind and let go of stress using this one-minute guided meditation. Hi, and welcome to Headspace. So no matter what's going on in your life right now, no matter how many thoughts are racing around your mind, no matter how the body's feeling, just take a moment to sit down and take a big deep breath, breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. As you breathe in, a sense of taking in fresh air, the lungs expanding. As you breathe out, a sense of letting go of any stress in the body, in the mind, just feeling the muscles soften and relax. And close your eyes if you'd like to one more, breathing deeply in through the nose and out through the mouth. And just take a moment to pause, allow the thoughts to come and go. And then just gently opening the eyes again. Join us next time as we continue to bring you a healthy dose of insights and perspective based on conversations with leaders who are transforming healthcare. We'd also love to hear your feedback, share your comments, and let us know your thoughts by writing a review at our website at doseofdialogue.com. Please also join the conversation on LinkedIn or Twitter or Dose of Dialogue. Thank you again for listening.